Now, speaking of prayer, uh, before we get into it, I welcome those joining us live over uh, Facebook. I welcome you this Sabbath morning. Uh, we're going to have a season of prayer now. I invite everyone to bow their heads with me, especially our hearts, as we come together and uh, and seek uh, seek help from the King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for uh, this gift, most precious gift that you've given to mankind. That we have a day that we can rest from our labors, that we can rest in Jesus, that we can come together and sing praises to you, learn from your holy word, and be recharged uh, by the encouragement we receive from, from each other, especially from the Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll be with us this morning as we look into your word and we ask for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us as we study. Uh, help us to understand the sin issue uh, better than we ever have before so that we may uh, increase in faith and bring glory to thy name. Father, we lift up before you those on our prayer list. We think of Lynn's family, her husband Rick and the family. Uh, we pray that you be very near to them. Uh, Father, you know uh, our uh, our hardships, each one of us. We pray that you will be uh, near to each one and, and, and bless us, uh, Lord, uh, to help us in furthering uh, the gospel message and the three angels' messages especially. Uh, and it is needed at this time more than ever. We know that Jesus is soon to come and we wish to be prepared and we wish others to be prepared as well. And Father, I pray that you will forgive us for our sins. I pray that you, that you will fill us with the, the Spirit and teach us how to love one another as Jesus loves us. And I pray for uh, the help of the Spirit this morning. Give me the words to speak as we talk about this theme. And I pray that hearts will be open to the truth. And may we study to show ourselves approved. I thank you so much for Jesus. For all that he has done and is doing for us, may we be ready when he returns. I pray in his blessed name, for it is worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. I want to begin, of course, I, I, I've entitled this particular message, and this is uh, just uh, another part in the series of the sin issue. Uh, I've entitled this message, Cast Thyself Down. Cast Thyself Down. Uh, I want to begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 21 and 22, specifically as we get started here uh, this morning. Peter says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, guile is... Uh, not having a false testimony, uh, not lying, uh, not bearing false witness. That's what guile means. And, and, and Jesus, of course, he never sinned. And, and neither was guile found in his mouth. And Peter is saying here that Jesus is to be our example in how we live. How we live our life. He came here. He lived a life of a, a human being. Because he became a human being. <laughs> he was divinity and humanity combined. And he did that as an example for each one of us. And so he is to be our example on how to live, and especially when it comes to battling the temptations of the devil. 
He went through the same type of attacks that we go through, uh, beloved. Uh, yet he overcame these temptations by constantly drawing uh, on that same power that is available to each one of us. That power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And, and in fact, I will tell you, that is the only way that Jesus overcame. He never once used his own divinity to overcome anything that the devil threw at him. He only used what is available to us. And the Holy Spirit is available to us. And so uh, this is how Jesus showed us, see, that we can be like him in character. Now we studied, the last time we were together, we studied that first wilderness temptation of, of Jesus. And as we look into this experience of Jesus, we'll see that within every human uh, heart, the great conflict which Jesus passed in the wilderness of temptation there is repeated. We have those same experiences. In our present condition, let's think about this for a minute. In our present condition, without having a testing regimen, let's call it, unless we're tested, if we don't have an opportunity to choose to do right or to do wrong, there can really be no positive character development. You know, that's what happens in school. You know, we go to school and we have quizzes and we have tests, right? And it's to see where we are in our educational process. And God is in the education business. <laughs> he wants to educate us uh, to conform into a character like his. And so we have these opportunities, you see. And so it's by resisting uh, temptation that we develop greater power to withstand temptation. And remember this, friends. A temptation, and I, and I talked about this uh, in the last couple of times we were together. A temptation always poses a challenge to some clearly known truth. Or else it wouldn't be a temptation. It proposes that circumstances uh, justifies a departure from principle. And so our character then is going to be changed according to the decision that we make either for good or for bad. We're going to be affected by it. With every temptation, we will change based upon what our decision is. The first temptation brought against Christ had to do with the material requirements of man's physical nature. Remember, Satan said, turn these stones into bread. And it stands for the materialistic philosophy uh, of life. Uh, which assumes that a man's life, a human being's life, consists in the abundance of things that come into his possession. And that he indeed lives by bread alone. You know, I've shared this before. I remember seeing uh, a bumper sticker before that said, He who dies with the most toys wins. That, in essence, shows us clearly what uh, you know Satan was bringing against Christ here in this first temptation. That man is just here to live and to eat and to possess things. And what did he appeal to in that first temptation? He appealed to uh, appetite. And, and that's the same uh, approach he took with Adam and Eve, isn't it? Uh, in the Garden of Eden. But we learned uh, in, in our study that appetite involves much more than hunger for food. It also involves 
those carnal tendencies we have as well, every one of them. And so Jesus' response was that he rebuffed that first temptation with the words, it is written. He used God's word uh, to rebuff Satan. So now we want to take a closer look at the second temptation that was brought against Jesus there in the wilderness by, by the devil and, and see what God has for us to learn in this temptation. You see, the devil doesn't just stop with one temptation, does he? He's not going to come to us once, and if we, we depend upon God and overcome that temptation, it's over with, we pass the test. Well, that's not the way it works, is it? And I, I think every one of us understands that. Uh, so he comes to Jesus again. And in fact, he's going to continue to assault us until this controversy is over. But let's go to Matthew chapter 4, and we want to read verses 5 to 7. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil taketh him, this is of course speaking to Jesus, and the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, it says there, Then the devil taketh him up. I want you to, to know, because some people get confused about this, and there are teachers out there, there are ministers that stand in the pulpit, and they say this wasn't really an actual event. This was temptation in the mind of Christ. And that's not true. You see, God's word uh, is very literal. <laughs> and uh, God doesn't want us to be confused. If it was just in the mind of Christ, we would have been told it was just in the mind of Christ. But temptation doesn't just happen in our mind, does it? That's where it begins. Then where does it lead? It leads to tangible things, doesn't it? And I want you to know that this actually physically happened, that Satan took him up. This was done not in a, a, a visionary way, like virtual reality. That's not what it was. But it really and truly... Uh, physically happen. The devil transported Jesus. He took him up. Only by permission now. By per divine permission and with the even with the consent of Christ he needed to have that as well. And, and what does that show us? That shows how great Christ's humiliation and condescension was. Um, so he was given uh, the, the consent to have power over Christ's body to move it from place to place. And the only reason he was given, let's think about this, the only reason that he was given permission was that in doing so, it would bring glory to God, see? Which we'll find here in just a moment as well. Um, now, he moved him, and I think it was much like when, remember, the Spirit of the Lord had caught away Philip. You know, uh, God moved Philip over so he could uh, witness uh, to uh, the Ethiopian. But uh, the devil, he took Jesus up. He raised him above the ground and he carried him through the air and it says there, into the holy city. Now, what city was that? 
Well, is there any doubt that, that this is speaking of Jerusalem? In fact, Luke expressly says in Luke 4 and verse 9 that they brought him to Jerusalem. But uh, uh, there are some history references uh, about Jerusalem being called the Holy City. You know, there are some Maccabean coins that bear the inscription, Jerusalem the Holy. Uh, In fact, the Arabic name for Jerusalem today is El-Quds. El-Quds, and it means the Holy. And so they even see Jerusalem as the Holy City. And so Jesus is transported by Satan to the pinnacle of the temple, we read there. To the pinnacle. And by the word temple, it could mean any of the buildings uh, that were associated with the temple. That was all included under that, that name temple. When they would say the temple, it could be any one of those buildings. Now the temple, if you'll recall, was built on top of Mount Moriah. A lot of things had happened years before on Mount Moriah, and here was the temple was built. The temple itself, together with the, the courts and what they call the porches, uh, it occupied a very, very large area of ground. The temple was surrounded with several porches. Um, most of them were about 50 feet wide and about 75 feet high, somewhere around in there. But the porch on the south side was about 67, 70 feet wide, and it was 150 feet tall. And from the top of that particular porch to the bottom of the valley below, because if you stepped off of it, you went down. It was about 700 feet. And in fact, Josephus says that when you looked over that porch, you would get very dizzy because of the height. And so, the word pinnacle, it says it took him to the pinnacle. That word there, the English word pinnacle, doesn't quite express the force of the the original uh, uh, Greek word. It's a word that denotes wings or anything uh, in the form of wings. And in fact, it was given uh, as a name to, to the roof of this porch because its shape actually resembled you know, a bird's wings be, when it comes down. It was dropping down. And, and so that's why it was called uh, a pinnacle. And I'm thinking, as, as I was studying this, I'm thinking that because of its height and the drop-off, uh, if you stepped off that porch of 700 feet, um, I'm thinking that this is the porch, actually, that part of the temple that uh, Christ was transported to and, uh, and then tempted uh, by Satan. And, and something else I, I've come across was that, uh, and I find it very interesting, that for centuries, centuries before, the rabbis taught that when the King Messiah reveals himself, then he comes and stands on the roof of the holy place. Isn't that remarkable? That, I found that to be very interesting. Why, why do you think that they, they believed that? <laughs> because it's not in Scripture anywhere. Uh, but uh, I'd say Satan was kind of laying the groundwork there, wasn't he, for deception? Now let me ask you another question. Why would Satan have transported Jesus 
to the pinnacle of the temple. I mean, were there no high mountains in the wilderness that he could have used and served the same purpose? I mean, I think it is obvious that Satan didn't select the temple as a site for his second temptation because of the lack of heights and, and, and precipices in the mountains there in the wilderness. So there had to be another motive behind this. It may be that Satan sought to surround this particular temptation with an air of sanctity. I mean, after all, looking at these temptations, this is where Satan first misuses Scripture to tempt Christ and to again appear uh, uh, like he's a holy angel sent from the Father in heaven. You recall because of the second temptation, he comes to him again with the statement of doubt. Remember, he says, If thou be the Son of God. What Satan was doing was, he was pretending to be an angel from the Father, and he said, Now, we're going to test your faith here. You think you're the Son of God. If you uh, be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you be the Son of God, jump off, uh, cast thyself off. <laughs> Uh, of the pinnacle here and the Father will save you and, and it proves that you're the Son of God. He was bringing doubt, you see. And he always tries to bring doubt in the minds of believers. And he's attempting to do this with Jesus. After all, I mean, it, it worked on Adam and Eve, right? And they were perfect. They were created perfect. Surely it'll work on Jesus who has a human nature from the seed of Abraham, right? And even though his first temptation failed, Satan is still acting, you know, as that angel of light to test the faith of Jesus. And this time he uses scripture. And, and he was using scripture also in an attempt to try to continue to conceal his true identity. So he urges the Savior to once again give evidence of his faith to the Father, proving he's the Son of God, by putting himself in harm's way to test God, to test God's promises. Now Satan said to Jesus, Cast thyself down. The English word for cast is from the Greek word balo. And it means to, to throw or let go of a thing without caring where it falls. That's what it means. Now, I want you to think about that. Satan brings Jesus to the, the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, Cast thyself down. Why would he say that? In other words, let go. Throw yourself off not caring where you fall. Do you realize that each one of us, you and I, neither one of us can be cast or thrown off the temple by anyone? Jesus couldn't. Did Satan throw Jesus off the temple? No. Satan can tempt us, see, to cast ourselves down but he cannot compel us to do it. He cannot force us to jump. He cannot force us to sin. You cannot say, friends, 
like Flip Wilson used to say in that old skit he would do years ago, the devil made me do it. You can't say that to God. I'm sorry I I did this, Lord, but the devil made me do it. That's not going to fly because he can't make you do it. Now, while you can't be thrown off the temple, you can choose to jump. And let me tell you this. Satan will help you to jump off the temple if you allow him to. If you don't jump, he can't throw you off. He hasn't been given permission to do that. And remember what James tells us in James 4.7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Amen? And so there are ways that the devil is forced to leave, as we, we also see here in these temptations of Christ. Jesus said, It is written. And the devil had to listen. Now, Satan said to Jesus, cast thyself down, knowing that he himself could not cast Jesus down, because God would step in and deliver him if he did that. Nor could Satan force Jesus to cast himself down. So Satan was given consent to transport Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and that was all. That was all the permission he was given to him. So unless Christ should consent, you see, to the devil's temptation then Jesus couldn't be overcome. Let me share this with you. It's from a book entitled Spiritual Gifts. On page 32, it says, If Jesus had cast himself from the pinnacle, it would not have glorified his Father, for none would have witnessed the act but Satan and the angels of God. And it would be tempting the Lord to display his power to his bitterest foe. It would have been condescending to the one whom Jesus came to conquer. Now remember, this was the the porch that was on the south side. And and it was butted up against a huge drop-off, 700 feet. Not too many people on the outside of that wall, right? There's not not anybody who's going to see what's going on here. In fact, that's another thing that Satan does. He took Jesus to the temple, put him on the pinnacle, but it was where no one else could see him. And that's what devil does. He does things, he conceals things, doesn't he? So, the tempter, he can never compel us to do evil. He cannot control minds unless they uh, yield to his control. We must give him our consent. And this can be done even the most, uh, you know, covert and subtle of ways, as we learned in in our studies in that series about spiritual possession. But the root, friends, of all our falls and why we fail and why we give in to temptation is because we take our eyes off our only source of power, and that's Jesus. And it's only then that Satan can exercise his power upon us in his attempt to cage our will. Uh, Again, which we got into in that series, Spiritual Possession. Every uh, sinful desire that we dwell upon and that we cherish gives Satan a foothold. It allows him, it's like giving him permission to even be there. Every point in which we fail, 
uh, of meeting God's divine standard is an open door for him. And, and he can enter in and he can tempt us and, and it will lead uh, to, because what he wants to do is completely destroy us. We were created in the image of God. That disgusts Satan. So just by looking at us is a reminder, a constant reminder, that God exists. It's a constant reminder that uh, uh, he has an enemy. You know, it's a constant reminder. So he wants to destroy us, and he, he uses any means that he can to do that very thing. Plus, think about this. Every time we fail... We take our eyes off of Christ and we fail. Uh, uh, it gives Satan the opportunity to blame Jesus to all the other angels and, to, and to, to declare that, see, I was right. I was right in saying that God is unjust and that it's impossible for man uh, to be good and etc. You know, And we don't want that. Remember this, friends, and I mentioned this earlier. Every time we are tempted our character is going to be changed in some way. We'll either become stronger in faith by resisting the temptation, or we will become weaker by giving into it. And that just strengthens the, the, the temptations from then on. Because when Satan sees weakness, he's going to attack even harder, you see. So we can either glorify our God, or we will glorify ourselves, depending upon our response uh, to whatever the temptation is. This is why God allows us, in our current condition here in this world, to be tempted. If temptation didn't change us in any way, why would God even allow such a thing? But he allows it because he wants to change us into his image. And if we allow him to, he will do it. And if we don't, what's going to happen? You see, we're going to be changed more and more into the image of Satan. Now, who wants that? This is why Satan comes uh, disguised as an angel of light. And this is what he did with Christ here in these first two temptations. He came to Jesus as an angel of light. If he would have come in as the enemy, that would have been pretty easy to say, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with you. All right? But he comes as an angel of light. And so... If we don't conform to the image of God, there's only one other image we will be conformed to. And you can bank on that. Because there's no middle ground. This is why Jesus said, uh, you know, you're either with me or against me. Because there's only one of two sides in this conflict. So it's a very serious thing that we're talking about here. It has eternal ramifications. Now, what is at the heart? We think about this, uh, this second temptation. What is at the heart of this second temptation? What is it dealing with at its very foundation? Well, it has to do with presumption. Well, Pastor Joel, what is presumption? What is presumption? Well, let me give you one definition. This is from... Webster's New World College Dictionary, 4th edition. This is the definition they give to presumption. They say, an overstepping of proper bounds, the taking of something for granted, 
overconfidence, arrogance, or effrontery. Effrontery means unashamed boldness, impudence, audacity. Can you believe that person's audacity? Right? Now, when we look at this definition, isn't this exactly what Satan was tempting Christ to do? To overstep proper bounds as pertaining to the will of our Heavenly Father? You see, Satan used the written word at this time because Jesus had used it to rebut his first temptation. So he says, ah, so he knows Scripture, I'll use Scripture. And so Satan comes, and he did this in an attempt to persuade Christ that this action that he was tempting him to do was the will of the Father. See, he was using Scripture to try to convince him that this is the will of the Father. But did you notice, and maybe you didn't, you might not know this, uh, but Satan only used part of the Scripture. He used only that part that justified his means. In fact, he only used about half of that particular Scripture. When Satan quoted uh, the promise of Psalm 91 and verse 11, he shall give his angels charge over thee, he omitted the words, to keep thee in all thy ways. That is, to keep thee in all the ways of God's choosing and not your own. Kind of convenient he left that off. And so this is why angels, friends, when you think about this particular scripture, what it really is telling us is, is that angels don't go with us everywhere we go. Uh, they will not go with us when we choose to do our own will, friends. And we go places uh, that we are not bidden to go by God. Let me share this. this is from an article. It's a Review and Herald article. And it says, God has given man precious promises upon conditions of faith and obedience, but they are not to sustain him in any rash act. If men needlessly place themselves in peril and go where God does not require them to go and self-confidently expose themselves to danger. Now, think about what's being said here and think about this second temptation. Isn't this what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do? Throw yourself off. Cast yourself down. All right? This is exactly what Satan was trying to, to tempt Jesus to do. It goes on and says, da, 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 and self-confidently, let me start that sentence over. If men needlessly place themselves in peril and go where God does not require them to go and self-confidently expose themselves to danger, disregarding the dictates of reason, God will not work a miracle to relieve them. He will not send his angels to preserve any from being burned if they choose to place themselves in the fire. And this, I'll say, this is exactly what uh, Satan was tempting Jesus to do. See? Satan well knew. He knows this. He's been studying human beings from the very beginning, over 6,000 years. Satan well knew that when a man departs from the straight and narrow way, he leaves God's chosen ground and he steps over into the enchanted ground of the enemy. But Jesus refused, you see, to depart from that pathway of, of strict obedience to the will of the Father. In order to set the... the uh, set forth the true meaning of the words that's quoted there in Psalms 91, 
and to uh, prove that the devil had misapplied them, what did Jesus do? Jesus quoted another passage out of Deuteronomy, whose context uh, sets forth the circumstances under which a person can claim the blessing of God. And you can find that in Deuteronomy 6. And here's where I want to give you a heads up. And you've heard me say this before. The Bible actually teaches principles on how to study the Bible. That's very unique. Bible texts, isolated from their context, often prove to be very misleading. And that's what the devil does. He uses things out of context. Have you ever run into someone who's used the Bible scripture out of context? I'm sure you have. Because we see it all the time. Also, a given passage has to be understood in harmony with all the other passages pertaining to that particular issue. The claim that the scriptures may be made to teach anything, which I've run into, uh, uh, is true only when you violate biblical principles of study. But when the Word of God is taken as a whole, its truths are very clear. They are harmonious. Um, the Bible explains itself actually quite well. That the words used by Christ to, to foil the tempter here were originally spoken by Moses. With reference to the, that first uh, occasion in the wilderness when the children of Israel, they were murmuring for water. You read that in Exodus 17. God had provided, let's think about that now, that, that experience there. God had provided abundant evidence of the fact that he was leading his people and would provide for their every need. For example, look at all the miracles that he displayed there in Egypt. Um, look at the dramatic uh, deliverance of his people there at the Red Sea, where he parted the waters and destroyed the Egyptian, the entire Egyptian army. Uh, and, and look at that incredible miracle of sending manna from heaven every week for 40 years, friends. So upon being supplied with food, the people had humbly promised, this is what we do, isn't it? We promise. Um, you know, Lord, in the future, we're going to trust you. That was their promise. We're going to trust you. Yet, just a short time later, when given an opportunity to exercise faith, they accused Moses of taking them out into the wilderness to kill them so he could keep all their possessions. Incredible. In spite of the evidence uh, of divine protection and divine care for their needs, they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I often wonder at that. I mean... Uh, you see such miracles, and I know faith has really little to do with miracles, um, but uh, how can you say is the Lord with us? That <laughs> just is amazing to me. But you see, they put God to the test. And, and, and that is, they, they challenged him to prove his divine power. Their sin consisted in the fact that they came to God in the wrong spirit one of demand, one of petulant anger, uh, rather than of, of humble, patient faith. 
And unless their demand was met, they refused to believe in God. And it was in this same spirit, you see, that Satan now proposed that Christ should put his father to the test. Instead of accepting by faith the Father's proclamation at the Jordan, remember when he was baptized by John, affirming him to be the Son of God, Jesus was to experiment in order to prove to his satisfaction that this was so. But such an experiment uh, would reflect doubt rather than faith. And friends, we're never to place ourselves unnecessarily or or carelessly in a position where God will have to work a miracle in order to save us from the results of a foolish decision. We're not to presume upon God to rescue us when we rush unbidden into danger. He's never promised to do so, in fact. Now, God may choose to do so, but He has never promised to do so For that would be encouraging the sin of presumption, you see. But thinking about this, let me ask you a question. Today's generation, they do a lot of extreme things. Um, uh, In fact, there are sports now called extreme sports. They do a lot of these extreme, you call extreme things, just for the adrenaline rush. Um, now, that's nothing new in itself, you know, but the ways that are being used to do this are obviously very presumptuous, would you say? For instance, let me give you an example. Not long ago, there was a guy who jumped out of a plane from like 25,000 feet, uh, 25,000 feet in the air without a parachute. And his goal was to hit a suspended net that was in a desert on earth. He goes up in an airplane without a parachute, jumps out from 25,000 feet, free falls with the goal of hitting a net down on earth. Isn't that the same kind of presumptuous act? friends, that Satan was tempting Christ to perform from the pinnacle of the temple when he said, cast thyself down. Cast thyself down, Christ, into God's safety net on earth. Think about it. Friends, the Bible is clear. God has not preordained your lifespan. You can be killed by dumb actions and decisions all on your own. God's not going to step in to save you from yourself unless you bring glory to His name in some way. You can end your life before the time it will naturally expire, which the Bible says on average is usually three score and ten, or seventy years. You believe that? Bible says, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 17 says, Be not overcome much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? Wicked and sinful decisions do cause premature death, friends. If Christ had thrown himself off that temple, the Father would not have saved him. 
let me tell you this again. If Jesus would have cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple, our Father in heaven would not have saved him. He couldn't have done so without proving Satan's claims to be true. Just as he couldn't save Jesus from the cross. Jesus had to die on the cross. Because sin causes death. By the way, do you realize that what Satan did here with God's word, you know, he only used half of that scripture. Do you realize that's actually a definition of fanaticism? When you add to or, or take away from the word of God to support your position, your personal doctrine, you're under the influence of a fanatical spirit. Because that's what Satan did. He only used half of God's word. He took away from it. Sometimes he adds to God's word. So you're under the, 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 the influence of a satanical spirit. Because that's, uh, that's what Satan does. And notice what Jesus did. Jesus said, it is written, and he quoted the entire scripture. And this is why it's so important to use correct Bible uh, principles of study and have a teachable spirit as well, friends. Because when you come to the Bible, you should come to the Bible wanting to know what the truth is and what it has to say. Uh, not come to it with, well, I want to prove to myself that what I think is right is right. No, friends, we need to have a teachable spirit and come to the Bible and say, what does the Bible have to say to me? What, is, what does it really say? And Satan used the same uh, tactic of tempting to presumption at the very beginning, back there in the Garden of Eden. And he has used it ever since. And you know why? You know why he continues to use it? Because it works. It works. God's Word, the Bible, is replete with uh, uh, the testimonies of those who have fallen for this great temptation. Let's look at a few. Let's start back there in, in the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. God's explicit commandment to refrain from eating uh, of that fruit, of that tree. That tree was set apart as a testing ground, you see, for man's loyalty and obedience. As a moral being, man had God's law uh, written upon his conscience. Remember that in order for us to make righteous decisions, and we talked about this when we talked about the will and the conscience, uh, in order for us to make righteous decisions, our conscience has to be educated in righteousness. Paul said, remember what Paul said about uh, sin. He said, where there is no law, there is no sin. Remember? So we need to be educated in the law, which is being educated in righteousness. And Adam and Eve, they were educated in righteousness. But as if to clarify the principles of that law by applying it to a specific situation and thus make a fair test of man's allegiance to his maker, an injunction was laid upon them. Let's go to Genesis 3. 
Genesis 3, we'll begin with verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And we know this story, don't we? But did you notice what Eve did here? What did she do? I mean, besides taking the fruit and eat it. Friends, let me tell you something. When it comes to God's Word, you can't just be a surface reader when you study it. You have to dig in, like the Bible says, like for hidden treasure. You have to study the Bible. Study it, or you're going to miss some very important truths. If you look close, you'll see that Eve misused God's word when replying to the serpent. Satan addressed her with a question that it looked innocent, you know, but it was full of cunning. And that's who our enemy is. He's very cunning. Now, it's been debated um, by translators uh, whether the question of Satan should be translated, first of all, has God really said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Meaning, are there any trees in the garden of which you may not eat? Or a second thought is, be, it can be translated as, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. The Hebrew actually allows both translations. <laughs> and therefore it possesses a certain ambiguity. And Satan intended that his words should be ambiguous. That's what he was trying to do, bring doubt. He was sowing doubt, tempting to, in the heart of Eve, concerning the real phraseology and the exact meaning of that divine commandment, especially concerning the reasonableness and, and, and justice you know, of such a command given by God. And friends, this same kind of tactic really uh, has been and is still being used today, even from the pulpit. It's amazing to me. But Eve evidently understood the question in the second sense. And instead of turning away and fleeing to her husband, um, she showed signs of wavering and doubt and readiness to discuss the subject further with the serpent. Friends, let me tell you, um, there are times, there are times when we should not get into a discussion about what God said. And this shows us how dangerous it can be if we don't understand that principle. There are times people will ask Bible questions when you're not to give an answer. That's true. <laughs> Eve should have turned and ran. <laughs> right? Now what was it that God really declared? 
Let's go back. God declared, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what he said, isn't it? Dying thou shalt die. That's what the original means there. Eve changed God's word. She said, Lest ye die. Now this is very interesting. A very subtle change that had incredible repercussions for all of us, friends. Eve declared that death might follow disobedience. That's what that means there. The word lest, it's the Hebrew word pen. It implies an inner alarm at the thought of playing with something that might prove fatal, concealed under an assumed cynical attitude toward the idea that such a thing could ever really happen. You know, like this. Um, well, God says we might die if we, we eat of that tree, but eh, I'm not so sure. That's essentially what Eve was saying when she said, lest we die. And that gave the serpent a bigger opening to bring doubt, didn't it? Yes, it did. A fanatical spirit, friends, beguiled Eve, and she was starting to presume that God would not really kill her just for eating fruit of all things. Have you heard people say that? Well, God's not going to destroy me for this little old thing here, right? But we see here how Satan's misuse of God's word affected Eve so that she was doing the same thing. And after doubt and unbelief in God's word had been awakened in the woman, the tree seemed vastly different to her. She looked at it differently. Three times uh, mention is made of how charming it was. It appealed to her taste, uh, to her eye, and to her longing for increased wisdom. She didn't see that before. She was already guilty in her mind of transgressing the, the commandment, Thou shalt not covet, Exodus 20:17. The act of taking the fruit and eating it was but that the natural result of entering upon that path of transgression. She'd already chosen it in her mind. Taking and eating it, pardon the pun, was the fruit of her decision. Having coveted that to which she had no right the woman proceeded to transgress one commandment after another, and that's what sin does. You sin once, it leads into another, into another, into another. What'd she do? She stole God's property. Violated the eighth commandment. By eating the forbidden fruit and giving it to her husband, she broke the sixth commandment. She broke the first commandment because she placed Satan before God in her esteem and obeyed him rather than her creator. Now, let's think of Adam. Now, of course, Adam wasn't with Eve right there. She brought the fruit to him a little later. But before he ate, a conversation between him and his wife had to have taken place. What a discussion that must have been. Should he follow his wife in her path of sin and disobedience or give her up? trusting that God would somehow restore his shattered happiness. You see, people misunderstand this. Eve sinned, but her sin did not cover all of mankind because Adam was in charge of all mankind. So Satan used Eve to get to Adam. And a lot of people don't understand that. If Adam would have stayed faithful and trusted God, God would have made things right. 
and we would never be where we are today. But the fact that she had not immediately died as, as a result of eating that fruit and that no apparent harm had come to her, that didn't deceive Adam. You see, he knew. Adam knew that God meant what he said. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman. The woman was deceived. Adam knew exactly what was going on. His wife's power of persuasion, coupled with his own love for her, induced him to share the consequences of her uh, fall into sin. Whatever those consequences might be, he made the decision. Instead of waiting until he should have the opportunity of discussing that whole tragic matter uh, uh, with God, he presumed to take his fate into his own hands. God surely would not kill Eve if he joined with her in disobedience. This is what Adam's thinking. Let me share this with you. It's from an article entitled The Temptation of Christ. Adam was not deceived by the serpent, as was Eve, and it was inexcusable in Adam to rashly transgress God's positive command. Adam was presumptuous because his wife had sinned. He could not see what would become of Eve. He was sad. I mean, just imagine this. He knew what was going on here. So, of course, he was sad, he was troubled, and he was tempted. He listened to Eve's recital of the words of the serpent, and his constancy and integrity began to waver. Doubts arose in his mind in regard to whether God did mean just as he said. He rashly ate the tempting fruit. So we see uh, presumption come into play here again. And this is what, uh, remember, Satan was tempting Jesus to do, was to be presumptuous and commit the sin of presumption. Let's look at another example here. And... uh, Oh, wow, I need to move along here. Uh, Let's look at Genesis 4. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thou countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Here we see that Cain used only the part of what God had commanded and and, uh, demonstrated to Adam and Eve concerning sacrifices for sin that agreed with him. He only used part of the Bible that agreed with him and he let go of part of the Bible that didn't. Cain had presumed, you see, that God would be pleased with the works of his hands and when God showed Cain his error by accepting Abel's offering and not his, 
Well, he became angry, and he thought God was playing favorites, you see. And so Cain was angry with God. He was angry with his brother. He was angry with God because he wouldn't accept his plans in place of the divine requirements. And he was angry with Abel because Abel disagreed with him and, and, and was trying to teach him. See? Also, fearing that Abel would take his birthright as well, Cain decided to kill him and he slew him. And so this is very interesting. We think of this example. What is our reaction when we are shown in God's word to be in error? Do, do we react as Cain did? Do we, you know, quote, kill our brother by our actions or more so by our words, let's say? I mean, think about that. I believe that very few realize the sinfulness of sin. They flatter themselves that God is too good to punish uh, the offender. Um, but the cases of Adam, Cain, uh, Miriam, Aaron, Uzziah, many others, uh, show that it's not a safe thing to sin against God in, in deeds, in words, uh, or even in, uh, in thoughts. God is, being, is a being, friends, of, of infinite love and compassion. But he also declares himself to be a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Aaron and, and Miriam thought that Moses had made a mistake in marrying the Ethiopian woman. And like Cain before them, they entertained feelings against Moses that were uncalled for. Moses was carrying a heavy burden, a lot of responsibility. And the Lord had appointed Miriam and Aaron to help him. But instead of doing this, they made his burdens heavier. Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses, they said? Hath he not spoken also by us? The Bible says that the Lord heard that. God was there when they thought he was far away, you see. And God answered Aaron and Miriam. Miriam was stricken with leprosy because she was the instigator of their uh, murmurings against Moses. The case of Uzziah the king reveals how God will punish the sin of presumption. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it says that this king presumed to enter the temple and burn incense to the Lord. Well, he wasn't a priest. In fact, when he went in there, there were 81 priests, there's four score and one, 81 priests that went into the temple after him and rebuked him for breaking the command of the Lord in what he was doing. And Isaiah was filled with wrath, just like Cain was, that he, the king, should be dictated to by others. And then God struck him with leprosy. And the Bible says that Isaiah the king was a leper unto the day of his death. Beloved, the Lord has ordained men to certain positions in his church. And he would not have them step out of the places to which he has appointed them. Isaiah was appointed to be king. He wanted to be king and priest. In fact, this was another uh, attempt by Satan to, to have a counterfeit Messiah. But I can talk about that some other time. We've got to be very, very careful. When the Lord gives a measure of success, we're not to become lifted up and think 
that we're qualified to do a work uh, for God which God has not called us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says that all these things, you remember this, Paul said, all these things happened unto them for examples. In other words, they were patterns, they were figures, they were examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. But notice the very next verse, for it gives the context of these examples. Paul says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, which is what happened to Isaiah. Jesus gave a lesson concerning self-righteousness, which is actually pious presumption of the highest order, and it is found in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You see, friends, it comes down to the character of God, really. Those who give in to the temptation of presumption believe God to be a respecter of persons, someone who does play favorites. But God's word is very clear on this point, as uh, recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. You know, when Peter said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And the Spirit of God inspired James to say, in chapter 2, verse 9, If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors, lawbreakers. And even though the Old Testament... Uh, scriptures are filled with example after example the results of this sin of presumption it is the one that ultimately caused the destruction of Israel and uh, you know not one uh, not one Christian was lost there in that destruction because they listened to Jesus they acted in faith and as they saw the sign they um, they fled but those in Israel, even up to the time that Rome entered into the city, they kept telling the people, we are God's chosen people. God will save us. And uh, that wasn't what happened, is it? Like I said, while Jews were killed, not one Christian perished in the destruction. Christ had given them a warning sign and they exercised faith in his word. And it's about faith, isn't it? Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Remember Jesus asked, he said, Shall he find faith on the earth? And it is a good question. Uh, for you see, there are many today who believe that God is a respecter of persons. And this leads them into the sin of presumption, you see. Just as Satan tried to lead Jesus on that pinnacle of the temple, 
to the sin of presumption. And there are many today who, you know, cling to their offering just as Cain did. Uh, there are many today who murmur uh, against God's chosen as Aaron and, and Miriam did. There are multitudes who are lifted up as Uzziah and as presumptuous as the self-righteous Pharisee. There are many today who are holding on to their temple, though the Lord has said to flee. There are many today who claim that they are the people of God, His remnant, though they mock His law and His prophet. Many today claim to be the chosen of God, yet they are not doers of His will. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to the destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The only way you can find it, friends, is to have faith. Presumption is Satan's counterfeit faith. Let me say it again. Presumption is Satan's counterfeit faith. In no way is true faith related to presumption. And only those who have true faith are secure against presumption. You see, faith claims promises and brings forth fruit of obedience by claiming those promises. Presumption also claims the promises but uses them as Satan did to excuse transgression. Well, God's not going to uh, kill me because I ate a little old fruit. God's not going to let me die even though I cast myself down off the pinnacle of this roof. Faith would have led all these Old Testament examples that we looked at to trust the love of God and to obey His commands as Jesus did. Presumption led them to transgress God's law, believing that His great love would save them from the consequence of their sin. And it's often, friends, when Satan has failed in leading us to distrust God, he succeeds in leading us to presume we are favored of God. If he can cause us to place ourselves unnecessarily in the way of temptation, he knows that he has the victory, you see. God will preserve all who walk in the path of obedience. But if we leave that path, we venture on Satan's ground and then we are sure to fall. The Savior told us in Mark 14:38, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Meditation and prayer would keep us from rushing into the way of danger and suffering so many defeats, friends. Sometimes when placed in a trying situation, we doubt that the Spirit of God has been leading us. Has that ever happened to you? But it was the Spirit's leading, you see, that brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. When God brings us into trial, He has a purpose to accomplish that's for our good. Jesus did not presume on God's promises by going unbidden into temptation. Neither did He give up to despondency when temptation came upon Him. And friends, neither should we. 
Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Jesus has made a way of escape for us, beloved, and he did it right there on that pinnacle. He stood on the word of God. In Psalms 50, verses 14 and 15, the psalmist says, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Friends, when the devil takes you to the pinnacle, and he tempts you to cast thyself down, do as Jesus did. Call upon the Word of God, and he will deliver you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that you keep your promises, that Jesus Jesus showed us the way to overcome temptation. He showed us and unmasked Satan's deception and showed us how to overcome this sin of presumptuous presumption. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us. us so that we may uh, have victory over sin and we may, may be an encouragement to others. We know that when we're tempted, we're going to be changed in some way. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to be alive in our hearts and in our minds and that our character is changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Please continue to be with us this Sabbath day and help us, Lord, to keep it holy, for thou art holy. We pray in the name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen.